I invite you to turn your Bible to the book of Hebrews. I'm going to incorporate that Jeremiah passage as we go, but I've changed a little bit of this message to get more material in, uh, and I can still make my point on the other. Hebrews chapter 11, the first six verses. I'm reading from the New King James Bible because it comes in a large print edition and for no other reason. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away that, so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For because he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And really it was just the last phrase there that's going to be the basis for this first session. He who comes to God must believe that he is. I simply want to start this whole seminar with this declaration, there is a God. Before we talk about the character of God, we must come to the conclusion that there is a God whose character we need to know and that sounds so elemental to us we really don't think we need to hear anything about it but there is contained in that one short remark a veritable treasure chest of doctrine that we need to know and understand and I think those are two distinct things uh, Samuel Craddock wrote in the 17th century a book called Knowledge and Practice or Knowledge and Understanding there are people who have knowledge and no understanding. They haven't got a clue what to do with what they know. And most Christians that I meet know just enough to be dangerous to the cause of Christ with it. They say inane things, and I am so often reminded of this quote by G.K. Chesterton, most people who profess to be Christians don't know what Christianity is, and if they ever find out what it is, they won't like it. And I find that to be true over and over. People say they believe in God, and then you tell them about the God of the Bible, and that's not the one they believe in or want to believe in. As Mark Twain said, God created man in his own image, and then man returned the favor. And that is the God that most people believe in, one that they have invented, one that they like, one who will accommodate them. The very first words of the Bible declare the existence of God. In the beginning, God... Now, for some people, their foundation for believing in the existence of God is the Bible. But here's the problem. There was a God before there was a Bible. But God existed before there was a Bible to declare that there was a God. God gave us the Bible. The Bible does not give us God. There is a God apart from Scripture, but we can't know Him to the depths that we can know because of the Scripture. But we can see this even further when we realize that God holds people accountable for truth even if they don't have a Bible to believe what it tells them. I mean, Paul talks about heathens that they're without excuse. They have no excuse. They have the book of nature. 
even if they don't have the book of divine revelation. And so when Paul tells us in Romans that heathens are without excuse, his reasoning is that God has made truth evident to them in the things that are seen. So they are accountable. In fact, Paul says that these things are clearly seen in the things that are around them, and they reveal, he says in Romans 1, God's invisible attributes. And Paul tells us that they knew God, but then here's an interesting thing. He says they would not have God in their thoughts. Now, in order for someone to not have God in their thoughts, they must first have God in their thoughts to not have him later, right? I know it's early for this kind of logic, but hang in there. You'll wake up and I'll make more sense after coffee. But their ignorance is a completely conscious choice. No one is born an atheist. They grow up and choose to not have God in their thoughts. What is so sad is that not only the heathen don't know God, but in Jeremiah God says, My people do not know me. That's the really sad part. But in both cases it's a conscious choice. Because unbelievers have the book of nature to reveal the existence of God to them, and believers have the book of God to reveal God to them. But neither of them, it seems, want to know him. Now, how can that be? Particularly in light of the fact that we're told in the Old Testament that God has made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the sons of Israel. God's not hiding his knowledge. It's just that no one seeks after God, Paul tells us. Or as it is said in Job, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of thy ways. That's the problem. It's not something we want. It's not something that's important to us. But whether you have the book of divine revelation or whether you have the book of nature, one thing is clear. Natural revelation can't save anybody, but it is enough to damn it. Why? Because the psalmist tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. Simply going like this at night makes you accountable. God's glory is seen in his creation to such an extent that man could and should reason the existence of God from that alone. He ought to be able to come to this conclusion. There is a glorious God and he deserves to be worshipped by me. But natural revelation will not show anyone the gospel truth of salvation by the mediator, Jesus Christ. But the very first verse of Genesis begins God's divinely inspired revelation of himself. And the first words are about the Bible that God wants us to know is that there is a God. In the beginning, God. Now, if you were to read modern man's translation of Genesis 1, it would be, in the beginning, man had a need. And so he sought someone to cajole him. So he invented God. But God's word starts with God. Now you and I accept that revelation as binding and infallible. But the truth of God's existence is a fact whether people accept the authority and fallibility of Scripture or not. Oftentimes I'll get into discussions with people and I'll make a statement and they'll say, well, I don't accept that. And I'll say, so what? What's that got to do with anything? 
I don't believe there is a God. Well, people in Russia don't believe there's a Disneyland. So what? And one thing that we... We're so intimidated. We've got to stop this. Rejection is not refutation. Simply denying something to be true does not mean it's not true. It simply means I'm ignorant. Remember back in the 60s when so much was going on in colleges like Berkeley and things like that, and people would boast about the fact that they were atheists or agnostics. And they would laugh at those of us who called ourselves Christians. Said, well, you, you imbecile. Oh, what are you? I'm an agnostic. <laughs> ah, in the, in the Greek means without. Gnosis means knowledge. I'm an idiot. <laughs> Why would you tell people that in a public forum? We ought to be able to show people by reason alone the truth of what Jonathan Edwards once said. Wicked men are inconsistent with themselves. People are not thinkers. And it's unfortunate that believers sometimes throw their hands in the air and say, well, if you don't accept the Bible as your final authority, we have no common ground to talk about anything. Well, why would you do that? There's much more we can do, and if natural revelation is binding on the unregenerate man, we can appeal to reason. And so this is my invitation to you this morning and today. Come, let us reason together. Now, when we talk about being, and this first lecture is going to be very philosophical in nature, so strap yourselves in and hang on tight. When we talk about being of any kind, we are left ultimately, it may take us a while to get to these ultimatums, but ultimately, we only have two options. Either something has always existed from which everything else has come, or nothing of its own volition produced something. I don't care where you come from philosophically, you'll have to arrive at one of those two conclusions. There was nothing, which is no thing, and the no thing, of which there was no thing, of itself, which is no thing, produced something. Or, something has always existed, and from it all other being comes. Now, even evolutionists, non-creationists, and people like that will have to say that those things are true. If they can agree that something has always existed, they will go this far. They will say, there has always been matter. They will admit that much. Now, we just want to examine this proposition Let's take the latter one that we talked about. The fact that at one point in history, which is something, there was no thing. And then for no reason and no cause, no thing produced thing. Do you really want to do that? I mean, this is the height of absurdity. It's the height of irrational, non-thing, 
non-thinking, excuse me, to say that there was no thing, and from that no thing, everything has come. You wonder why people are allowed to talk if that's the best they can do. For nothing comes from nothing but nothing. Now, we'd also have to say this, and I'm just asking you to think with me. Before there can be an action, there must be a choice for the action to occur. You don't do anything that you don't first choose to do. You must choose to do something before you can do it. But if something can come out of nothing, then there was a choice for something to occur before there was anything existing to choose. Are you with me? If something came out of nothing, nothing chose when there was nothing to think or choose. Now, somebody's getting it because they're realizing the absurdity of that kind of thinking. But that's what people who reject the existence of God are left with. You also have to say this. Nothing has the ability to create itself. That would mean that something would have the will and ability to create itself before it existed to have a will and an ability. So it would have to be possible for a non-being, something that didn't exist, to have a will and power to create itself into being when it didn't exist in the first place to have a will and a power. Now we're smiling at this and scratching our heads. And you say, who thinks like this about everybody in the world except people in this room? Those who oppose the biblical teaching on creation are left with that as a, quote, viable option. Nothing can create itself. All effects of necessity must have causes. If there's an effect, there must be a cause for that effect. Or let me put it this way, nothing just happens. And to show you that people don't really believe that, even if they say it, some people will do that. Well, where did that come from? Well, it just happened. But nobody believes. Every time somebody dies, we do an autopsy. Why? Because there was a reason that they died. When somebody dies, you never read yet, so-and-so died, and they took him to the autopsy room, and the doctor looked at him and said, it just happened. He wants to find out why. I love to watch that show CSI, Crime Scene Investigation. I love getting to the bottom of things, except when they show the bullet going into the bladder and it exploding in there and all that kind of thing. I can do without that part. But for the rest of it, I like, I like to know why. So does every child who's ever born. Because as soon as a parent tells them to do something, that's the first question they ask. Why? And parents with their infinite wisdom and because they accept the logic of Scripture give a very biblical answer because I said so <laughs> we want to know the reason for something we want to know the cause for the effect which is death now when we come to a theology and apologetics we apply the same principle nothing just is if it exists 
There's a reason for its existence, as well as a cause for its existence, so we're then left with the only rational alternative to what we've just seen, and that is that something has always existed. If it's true that something has always existed, then there are corollary truths that necessarily follow. And that is really what we're going to do the rest of the weekend. If something has always existed, what are the truths that follow? First of all, if anything has always existed, it is therefore necessarily eternal, right? Something that has always existed, which has no beginning and no end, is eternal. If it has a beginning, then something caused it beforehand, and whatever caused it is the eternal being. But whatever the origin of all being is, it would have to be eternal. If it's eternal, it must be without defect. Because if it had defect, it would eventually decay and go out of existence, and therefore it couldn't be eternal. It would age, it would decay, and it would eventually cease to be. But an eternal being can of necessity have no defects, so it must be a perfect eternal being. If it's a perfect eternal being, its eternality and perfection would demand that it is incapable of change. Because if you're perfect and eternal and there's any change, it could only be a regression. You could only go from a perfect state to an imperfect state. You could only go from an eternal state to a finite state. And if you were not perfect and not eternal, you couldn't be something that's always existed. In the area of apologetics, this is known as classical apologetics. I know many people are presuppositional in their apology. You just have to assume God. You have to start with God. But one of the things the Puritans were so strong on is that you had to be able to discuss with an unbeliever who didn't accept your source of authority in fact, one of the things they wanted to do was to get this man competing with himself, not with you. Because if you can show him the inconsistencies in his own argument, he's left with no one to fight with but himself. I remember talking, uh, what we'll talk about in the next session, about God being infinite, and there could only be one infinite being. And the man said, why couldn't there be two infinite beings? What does infinite mean? Well, it has no boundaries. Don't you think two infinite beings would bump into each other eventually? Oh. The late Dr. Gerstner used to say this about uh, Jonathan Edwards, that when Edwards would debate somebody, he had this terrible character flaw that he thought debates were meant to be won. They weren't just discussions to be had. And so while uh, you've heard people say, well, he won the debate, and then if he really won, people will say, and he dusted off the spot where the man stood who was opposing him. And Dr. Gerster said of Edwards, he not only won the debate and dusted off the spot, he dismantled the platform and burned the wood. <laughs> now, if a perfect eternal being exists, then it sets the standard for all definitions of whatever is. Because when it exists by itself, that is the standard. And if that being is perfect and eternal, then that standard is an eternal standard. For in its existence, and before it creates anything else, its very existence is the only applicable standard. This would also be true because there's nothing else in existence by which to evaluate anything at all. Before God created every, anything, 
he was by himself with the Son and the Holy Spirit. And they all thought he was doing just fine. And then God created man and nobody's been happy since. God creates man and then man the first thing man does is tell God everything he's done wrong so far. It's a common thing about people who are single. They say, you know, the nice thing about being single is everybody in the room with you thinks you're great. So whatever this being chooses to do will of necessity be the right thing, right? Because there's no other standard to evaluate itself by. And in order for somebody to criticize, there'd have to be something superior to that which already exists. And it's not a rational possibility for an eternally existing being to have a superior. Therefore, as the scripture says, who can criticize God? For that would mean that the superior being would be the eternally existing being. And this leads us to the next necessary conclusion, and that is that all that does exist owes its existence to that original source of being. If something is eternally existent, it therefore has the quality of self-existence and all other being must come from this being. That first being or first cause which is self-existent is the source of all that is, which obligates all that is to total subservience. Because to the extent that we depend on something for our existence, we owe it homage. That's the biblical argument for the reason that children are to obey their parents. One, because it's right. Well, what makes it right? Because you owe them your life. Without them, you wouldn't be here. And to the extent that your sustenance, maintenance, and existence depends on someone else, you're obliged to show them homage and obedience. But let's continue our rational observations on the nature of eternal being. If such a being exists, and I think we've seen that it must, its only obligation is to itself. Because nothing else exists at a time that would obligate it to anything else. It would violate no law if it were self-centered. That's what we're going to look at in the next session. And if it's the standard of all that is right, we've already seen nothing could be critical of its self-centeredness. For a created being wouldn't have the eternal perfect being which would allow it to raise the question of impropriety. And this amazing thing about creatures, God creates us and then we tell him what to do. Okay, God, here's what you have to do to keep me happy today. And then we call that prayer. The next thing we would see is that this eternal perfect being would have all knowledge. And the sum of all knowledge is the knowledge of itself. For all that is of and from itself is all that is, and therefore to know itself is to know all things. I'm really giving you an overview of what we're going to do in the following sessions. The greatest thing that this being could do for anything or anyone else then would be to reveal itself and let itself be known. Isn't it interesting that that's what John 17:3 says, this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent eternal life is knowing God the greatest thing God can do for us is to allow us to know him 
And so the greatest act that God has done is to reveal himself to his ungrateful creatures who reject that knowledge and then complain that God's not fair. Uh, it's just an amazing thing when people who hear about the doctrine of election say it's not fair. Then you say, all of a sinner's life he has said to God, leave me alone. And then God says one day, okay. And then they say, that's not fair. What's not fair? God gave you exactly what you wanted. He wanted to sin, and he said, you shouldn't do that. Leave me alone. Well, you need to stop doing that. Leave me alone. Okay, I'll leave you alone. How could you do that? That's the way people react to God. And we say that he's not fair. The, the, the statements we make about God are just amazing. God's not relevant, people will say. Well, God is relevant. We're not. This being would not only be the source of all existence, but it would have all authority. Because all that exists comes from it. Any authority would be delegated or granted, but this being's authority is inherent, so therefore this being would be sovereign have the absolute right and responsibility to govern and rule over everything that is not like itself, which would be self-existent, eternal, and perfect. And this being would be complete, self-sufficient, because it was doing just fine before there was anything else. You've heard people say insipid things like this, God created man because he was lonely. What? I mean, first of all, that suggests an emotional deficiency in an eternally perfect being that only a created per imperfect being could somehow satisfy. But if you just think of it this way, if you were God and you were lonely, would you create you? <laughs> you know, I'm not happy here in heaven. The fellowship I have with my Son and the Holy Spirit are just not sufficient. I think I'll create something that never thinks I'm doing enough to keep me company. Come on. If this being is complete and self-sufficient, it would not be altered either positively or negatively by anything it has created. Because anything it does create would be an expression of itself, not an addition of itself. It would be totally self-sufficient, and you would argue that since it is totally self-existent. So this being would be completely happy in and of itself. Nothing could add to its enjoyment of itself or detract from it. Now, all of that has come from reason alone. We would have to admit from reason alone that something has always existed, and that something is eternal, perfect, righteous, all-powerful, all-knowing, immutable, self-sufficient, and blissfully happy apart from anyone or anything else. One more thing that's a necessary consequence of there being a being like this. He must oppose and punish all who reject him. 
because to tolerate and accept those who oppose and reject him would be to deny himself and to invalidate and deny that which is the greatest good. That which itself is the standard would have to denigrate the very standard it, is, it has set to accept those who oppose it. That being cannot and will not love or accept anything unlike itself. Now whatever unbelievers want to do with all this information, we Christians call such a being God. And I certainly don't think it's any stretch if we took reason alone and came to the conclusions that such a being must exist and then find that there's a book that describes such a being and calls him God to say that must be who that is and let the unbeliever denigrate the very information that the Bible gives us which reason alone that could come from a heathen who doesn't believe in a God for a second would have to admit all the previous information was called from natural revelation but could also be seen from God's divine revelation. Genesis 1.1 gives us the existence of God as an eternal being. In the beginning, God. And the Bible tells us that if God exists, there are things that are true about him and their truth comes from the very notion that God exists. In that passage that we read from Hebrews 11, it says that he who comes to God must believe that he is could there be anything more elemental than that? If you're going to come to God, you've got to believe that there is a God. I mean, how basic can it get? And yet, notice what follows as a necessary consequence of what must be true if there is a God. He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. In other words, if there is a God, that God is a good God. That's the first corollary from God's existence. Now, first of all, how could that be? Because whatever that God does must be right, since it alone is the standard for all that is. And that God is the source of all that is, we have in Romans 11.36, where we are told, For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are what? All things. Peter tells us that God is the ever-blessed God. He is always happy. It's an interesting word, blessed, there in the Greek, makarios, which is what Christ uses in the Beatitudes. Blessed are they, blessed are they, blessed are they. It's an interesting word because it's a word that the secular Greeks used to describe their gods. And you know they had that god system, Thor, Zeus, Aquaman, Daredevil, all those gods. And one of the things they said about their gods was that they lived life on a plane above human existence and were unaffected by what happens here on earth. That's the word Peter uses to describe God as being always happy. James tells us that he is incapable of change. He says that there is no shadow of turning with him. And we're told that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he is, he will always be. He's always been that way. He'll always be that way. He can never be more or less, much less different than he always is and always has been. He's eternal, and he's eternally the same. And we're going to look at that in the session on the immutability of God. And it is all of these things we're going to study 
And I think one of the things that we'll see is what an abominable ignorance we have of the true God. Listen to Isaiah 1, 2, 3. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master, but Israel does not know, my people do not consider. Now, in the Septuagint rendering of this passage, the word me is added after the words know and consider. Israel does not know me, my people do not consider me. We don't often realize how insulting the Bible can be to us. When the scripture tells us all we like sheep have gone astray, it's not thinking of the little lamb in the petting zoo. You know, those things are so cute. They come up and, you know, you put a quarter in a thing or 50 cents now and you get a little bunch of something. Probably if we knew what it was, we wouldn't let it in our hands at all. And we put it out there and then the little lamb comes up and it... And we pet it. It's so sweet, the little lamb. That's not who he's talking about there. Sheep are the dumbest animal in the world. That's what he's talking about. All we like the dumbest animal in the world have gone astray. And here he says that our intelligence quota is below donkeys and cows. The ox knows his owner. The donkey knows its master. But my people don't know me. What is God asking of us that, that, but that we rise above the level of cows, donkeys, and sheep in our knowledge of who we are and who we belong to? Much is made of what happens in Acts when Paul says he saw the shrine to the unknown God. That's what most churches are today. It's a shrine to the unknown God. In a recent World Magazine article, this was last summer, they made a list of the top 100 selling Christian books for that year. And I went through the list and only four out of a hundred were even charitably about God or Christ. Ninety-six percent of them had nothing, let me say little or nothing, to do with God or Christ. Hugs for women. Hugs for kids. The power of a praying wife. The power is in the God who hears prayer. It's not in the wife. It's all self-help. Feel good. Do this and have a happy day. How to love your mother from the life of Isaiah. But the Bible is about God. Again, I say I'm being extremely charitable. I mean, you can hear God rephrasing that statement in Isaiah to evaluate the church today. My people know financial concepts. They know love languages. They know pop psychology. They know how to express their needs to each other. They know how to give hugs. They know how to deliver themselves from demons. How to loose themselves from oppression. How to take weight off. How to get out of debt. How to bind Satan, claim this and that. They know a thousand peripheral things, but they don't know me. 
The Apostle Peter said that grace and peace would be multiplied to us over and over and over again through the knowledge of God. 2 Peter 1.2 In fact, he says this, Everything that pertains to life and godliness comes through the true knowledge of Him who called us. Wouldn't you say that? I mean, we're told in counseling... Get people away from those all statements, those ever statements, those never. You never helped me around the house. Well, as soon as they find one time they did, that's a lie. I helped you in 1967. I remember it very clearly. Don't tell me I never helped you. But here Peter says everything comes through the true knowledge of God. Now that presupposes there is such a thing as a false knowledge, right? And through the true knowledge of God comes everything that has to do with life and godliness. He uses two interesting words, zoe and bios, from which we get zoology and biology. Everything that has to do with physical life and spiritual life has the true knowledge of God as its source. I just want to know myself. In Isaiah 6, when Isaiah came to know God... He saw God, and then Isaiah did know himself. Problem was, he didn't like what he saw. Is it any wonder, then, that God says in Jeremiah, his people are foolish for not knowing him? And the Hebrew word there doesn't mean silly. It means they are morally deficient. And then he adds that they have no understanding. Repeatedly, God says, my people have rejected knowledge. We don't know God because we don't want to. It's not important to us. It's far more important to know ourselves, but the more I get to know myself, the more bored I am with myself. That's why I hate introductions. I can't think of anything less appealing than to hear about somebody as boring as me. And if I ever wonder if I really am boring, my daughter keeps reminding me, Dad, you're boring. Dad, you're dull. Dad, get a life. Dad, you don't do anything interesting. All you do is study the Bible and read about old dead guys. But if that's boring, how much more boring is it to know each other? You see, that's a conscious choice. So all of us are without excuse. In Ephesians 4, Paul explains that sinners walk in the futility of their mind having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, because, he says, they've given themselves to sin. We're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's the indictment under which we all stand. That is our problem, and it is self-induced. So what are we to do? The Scripture tells us to press on to know the Lord We must confess the sin of self-imposed ignorance and turn from it. And we must now give ourselves not just to know facts about God, but the God of the facts. How does he think? How does he act? Why does he act that way? What does that tell me about his nature and character? The ox knows his owner and the donkey knows his master, but my people do not know me. My friends, from this moment on, we must purposely and aggressively strive to rise above the status of oxen and donkeys. Let us be determined to know God, because this is eternal life. Shall we pray?
Lord Jesus Christ, we must confess the sin of self-imposed ignorance. May we this weekend learn to know what our God is like. And because of that, what we must be like. We ask you to open our eyes, our minds, and our hearts this weekend as we look at the only relevant topic there is. Who is God and what is he like? And what does he want from me? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.